We have a lot of guests that come into our home over the course of a year. And, um, and in our living room, we have a bowl of puzzles. Little metal puzzles that you'd have to try and figure out how to get them apart or how to put them together. Little brain teasers. And it's been a fun way just to kind of pass them around to everybody, try and figure out the puzzle, and we'll carry on conversation and talk, and everybody's kind of messing with something at the same time. One of those things in that bowl of puzzles is a lighter. And I throw it in with the puzzles, and I say, the, the goal here is to figure out how to make it light. And so people press the top, and they get a good shock. Because it shocks you. (laughs) Ah, they scream. And with a straight face, I say, you didn't do it right. You need to keep at it until you can get get that flame to come out. Now, some people, maybe because of the Snickers around the room, they go, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Once is enough. Others, keep at it. It's amazing how long somebody will will sit there and shock themselves just because somebody else said that it's a puzzle and you can do it. That brings me to my sermon this morning. Paul, I think, in this section of Scripture here, still on the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, is trying to keep us from a ditch. And always there's two ditches. And in, and in respect to the ministry of God, God is in us. And God is living through us. When it comes to suffering, there's one of two ditches. We say, because God is in us and at work, I should never suffer. Or God wants all things to be healed. And because somebody simply tells you that, we can spend a lot of time saying, what is wrong with me? I must not be doing it right. And how long we hang on to that belief that I should be healed of everything that ever happens to me because somebody tells me so. And it's like continuing to press that, that lighter that will not light. And I keep getting shocked by what amounts to a false expectation. On the other side, the other ditch, I can come to the conclusion that God doesn't heal anything. And I need to just grin and bear it. Thank God, praise God, and just simply endure it and never ask God for healing. Because God doesn't heal today. Both of those are ditches. And I can be in that ditch that God never heals, and then every so often I hear somebody claim, God has healed them. God has set them free. And I have to struggle with, do I stay in this ditch? Maybe it's not a ditch. Maybe these other people are saying things that aren't true. And I think it's in part because of that tendency to not know what to do in reconciling the, the present activity of the indwelling Spirit of God and the reality of suffering in this world that Paul writes now. He's not changed subjects, but now he's introduced the thought of suffering to the same subject of the ministry of the Holy Spirit today in the life of the believer. And that's why I jumped in at verse 17, which is the middle of a thought, 
because Paul just so naturally moves toward this. After having said that the Spirit of God lives in you, therefore there's no condemnation, therefore the law of sin and death you've been released from, that He brings you into life and peace, and all these different things that he's mentioned in the first half of the chapter. And then he says, and if children, and we are the children of God, and he bears witness to the fact that we are his, he cries out within us, Abba, Father, and we go, Amen. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, and we go, Amen, hallelujah. And then he throws in this caveat. If indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And here comes the suffering. But he's not just mentioning suffering here, he's also mentioning glory, if we are glorified with him. And throughout the rest of the chapter, Paul keeps those two things together, suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. And I don't like that if. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. Because we don't always suffer. Quite honestly, some Christians seem to be able to go through all of life and and just be exempt from, from a lot of difficulty. So maybe we're not suffering enough to be glorified with Him. And when is enough? Enough. I get an ingrown toenail and I think, it's enough. <laughs> but here's the thing. Even though He puts that condition on there, if we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. Back down to verse 39, 29 and 30 Remember what he said? Verse 30, Whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, and have we been justified? Yes, these he also glorified. So again, positionally, from God's vantage point, there is no if. We have been glorified. And there is no if. We will suffer. Both are going to happen. But the glorification, in terms of, of God's vantage point, is already done. We have been glorified. So I don't have to worry about whether or not I'll enter into glory because maybe I haven't suffered enough. I will suffer, whether it's a little bit or a lot, and I will be glorified. It's a promise of God. Keeping those two thoughts in mind, suffering and glory... Paul now moves on to talking about this. Suffering and glory, he's going to say three things now. He's going to say first in verse 17, we suffer with Him, with Christ. Then he'll say, it is at this present time. And then thirdly, it is until the revealing of the sons of God. So verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The suffering are with Christ. The sufferings are only for this time. And the sufferings will continue until the sons of God have been revealed. Sons of God being revealed, sometimes Paul speaks of us as being sons, sometimes he speaks of us as being children. Which one is it? When he wants to speak of us being in the family of God, when he wants to speak of us being um, born into God, he, he, or born by the Holy Spirit, he will often refer to us as children. The idea of new birth. The idea of being born into the very family of God. When he wants to speak of our maturity and our rights 
and our full standing before God, he speaks of us as being sons. We are adopted as sons of God. We are born as children of God. And so when he says the revealing of the sons of God, speaking about that time which is yet to be when, the, when we will enter into the full mature state that God has intended for us. When that time comes, suffering will come to an end. But until then, we suffer with Christ, we suffer now, and we suffer until the revealing or the glorification of the sons of God. And then he wants to talk about what we can expect, what certain things we should know about this present time of suffering. So, verse 19 again. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. First thing that Paul wants us to know is that creation itself is eagerly waiting that day. Now, he's personifying creation. He's giving creation the capacity to to know and to anticipate. It eagerly waits for that revealing of the sons of God. What he's hinting at is creation also suffers and it will always suffer until God's people come into their glory. And until that time, there's always going to be suffering in creation. Look what he says next. For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So creation was put into a place of futility. Creation was put under, um, was put under the curse of Adam until that time when the children of God are brought into glory. And until then, it will continue to be in that place of corruption and futility. God put it on creation in response to man's sin. Now, what are some points here that Paul's making already about creation and its suffering? Nothing is going to change creation's status of being under sin, of being under corruption. Nothing is going to change it until God's people are brought into glory. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about the environment. But it is to say we shouldn't worship the environment because the environment is not perfect. Creation is under corruption. It is subjected to futility by God. It is not an object of devotion or worship. It is not what we should even live to correct because it's not going to be fixed by anything man would ever do. Whatever problems in this world, whether it's dirty rivers or polluted air, there is nothing man can do to fix the ultimate problems that we see in creation. Because God has put creation under the curse. And only that curse will not be lifted until God's children have been brought into glory. Nothing is going to change creation status except the glorification of God's people, not environmental policy. Then he continues, verse 22, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. We know this. Creation isn't perfect. It isn't to be worshipped. It isn't being to be romanticized. Creation is groaning and suffering. We know this. I remember a story 
and I can't remember all the specifics of it, but a school in California had adopted a seal that had washed up on the beach and needed to be cared for. And so they spent lots of time and love and energy nursing the seal these school children did back to health and, and to where it was old enough to be able to release back into the ocean. And all in good you know, um, intention and, and in a love for creation and all that, that, that it symbolizes, they, they nursed the seal back to health and they went out to the beach, the whole school class, and they released the seal into the waves of California. And watch the seal swim away, only to see a great white shark come up and grab that seal and take it back down to the screams of all those little school children. And I thought, it's as it ought to be. What a lesson for those kids. The answer for man is not in creation. Creation is under the curse. It is corrupt It is futile. We know this. It is not to be romanticized. It has its own problems. It is suffering. It is groaning in pain. And not only creation, verse 23, but we also. We ourselves have the first fruits, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Not only this, but also we ourselves. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown. I love that verse. We have God, God in us, and we too suffer, just like the creation that we live in. We need to realize that. We need to acknowledge it. And if, listen, it's as though Paul is saying if the creation that Jesus died for, the Redeemer, Redeemed. There is everything that needed to be accomplished on the cross was accomplished. He died for the curse of sin. He became a curse for us. And yet Paul says, wake up. Creation is still under a curse. And we, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too groan just like creation does. And if creation is groaning, he's saying, folks... Don't let anybody tell you, you won't groan too. Somebody may say, you shouldn't be suffering. Somebody might say, if you just had enough faith, your problems would go away. God never intended for you to suffer. Sickness and death are not of God. And you can reject those things, you can rebuke those things, you can claim His kingdom and His promises, and those things will go away. God wants you to do this, and you need to insist upon it. Well, the atonement is complete. Amen. But Jesus died for baby seals. Now, I understand this correctly. I'm not saying he died for seals. He died for people. But baby seals get eaten by great white sharks because of sin in the world. And Jesus died for all sin. Death is in the world. Because through one man's sin, death entered the world. Romans 5. And death spread to all men because all have sinned. All kinds of death. And it will be in this world. Even though the Spirit is in us, death is going to rule in this world until God brings His children into glory. 
The kingdom is not yet. I'll come back to that thought. Verse 24. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? And if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Salvation and hope go hand in hand. In other words, everything that Jesus did on the cross is not fully applied today. He did everything that needs to be done, but it is not all applied now. In the now, creation is groaning and we are groaning. Because all that Jesus accomplished is not all applied at this moment. And until that time, this is the way that it is. We groan, but we have hope. We have hope. Hope is about what is not yet. Hope is about the unseen. Hope is about the unrealized. Hope is about waiting eagerly. Hope is about perseverance. These are good things. It honors and glorifies God for His children to have something to hope for. It is good to have hope. But hope says, you can't have hope. You won't have hope if you have everything that you, that you want right now. There's no reason to hope in anything. And God wants His people, God who is the God of hope, wants His people to be filled with hope. And you're not going to be filled with hope unless you first face the reality things are not as they should be. And that is not to deny the atonement of Christ. That is to say, yes, Jesus died for all things, for all that is under the curse. But in the now, it is not yet applied. And you can think, man, I tell you, I, I, if somebody is of the mindset that there should be no suffering, and all we need to do is stand on the promises of Scripture, wrongly applied, the kind of uncertainty at best, and even insanity that it can lead people to. Because it doesn't fit with what God is showing us. Creation is under a curse. And all the hopeful thinking, all the wishful thinking, all the faith in the world is not going to change the reality that this is a fallen world. Creation suffers and we suffer. All right? Great. Still don't like this passage a whole lot. Is there any good news here? And now Paul brings us to the ministry of the Spirit at this present time of suffering. So much else he's already talked about, don't forget, in the first half of this chapter about the ministry of the Spirit indwelling the Christian. We are not under obligation to the flesh. You, therefore, brethren, are not under obligation to the flesh because the Spirit of God is alive in you. Amen. But even though I do not have to give in to the presence and power of sin, Paul's trying to tell me sin is still present in this world. And it is present in you and I. So what is the ministry of the Spirit in a fallen world? Two main things he's going to mention here. First, verse 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. 
What weakness is that? The weakness of being under the curse, obviously, but more than that. We do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What is this about? It's about, why introduce the subject of the Spirit praying? The context, remember, is suffering. And if there's one thing that perplexes us, how should we pray when people are suffering? Do you pray for healing? Or do you pray for persevering grace? How do you pray? Do you just pray, God, thy will be done? Well, amen. But would God never have us be more specific than thy will be done? Are there ever times, God, when you would have us pray specifically for healing and to believe that it's going to take place? Or are there times when you would say, don't pray for healing, pray that they would know my grace and live in that sustaining grace? As Paul was told by Jesus, stop praying for healing. I'm not going to heal you, Jesus said to Paul, after only three times of praying. God's will was not to heal Paul. So as I think on this, obviously, first of all, we have to be encouraged that the Spirit of God Himself intercedes for us. Thank you, God. I don't know how to pray. Paul's saying, I don't always know how to pray. But the Spirit knows how to pray. He's pretty good at it. And He knows exactly what to pray. And He is praying constantly interceding constantly for us praying in the right way not only the spirit we're going to be told later on at the end of the chapter that Jesus also constantly intercedes for us so the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are continually interceding for the believer. And in this passage, specifically in how to pray in respect to sufferings. And when he prays, when he intercedes for us, it is with groanings too deep for words. Creation groans, we groan, and the Spirit groans. Even the Spirit of God does not like the sufferings that we endure. That should tell us something. God's intention from the beginning was never that this world be under sin. God didn't create sin. It wasn't His idea. It's not what He wanted. And it causes God to groan. He hates it even more than we do. Now I say that because it's not always the common view today. Just a few quotes. One person Everything depends upon the mere will of God. If some are damned and others are saved, it is because God has created some for death and others for life. He does not groan. It's to his glory and to his joy. Another writes, God wills all things that come to pass. God desired for man to fall into sin. God created sin. R.C. Sproul. Susanna Wesley, writing to her son John, said the doctrine of predestination 
which is to say God is to blame for everything that ever came into this world. God created it all. She says to her son John Wesley, the doctrine of predestination is maintained by rigid Calvinists. And Scripture does teach predestination. We'll see it here in this paragraph at the end. Is very shocking and ought utterly to be abhorred because it charges the most holy God with becoming the author of sin, with being the author of sin. Two Master of Divinity students who came to um, to an understanding about the about the sovereignty and predestination of God in a way that that I think is contrary to Scripture. They were quoted in Christianity Today as saying, blaming God for everything has been such a joy that we decided the least we could do was to tell the world how we got here. Another person writes, we believe that from all eternity God has intended to leave some of Adam's posterity in their sins and that the decisive factor is to be found only in God's will. The problem with saying that One, that the deciding factor for everything that happens in this world is to be found only in God's will. Part of the problem there is that it doesn't start far enough back. It doesn't begin with the nature of God. But it begins with the will of God. And God's will, God's will is bound by God's nature. It doesn't go far enough back. And starting with God's will, they say God wills that all men are, be saved. Or God wills that some people are, be created for hell. And it pleases God. Pleases God. To create people for hell who could never do anything other than go to hell. Pleases God. It is to His glory. And so if that's the case, if, if it, God willed sin, if everything that's in this world is here by the will of God, then even sin is in this world because God created it and God willed it then God is the author of sin. It doesn't start far enough back. God is holy. And that's why Susanna Wesley saying it is abhorrent to the holy God. If we start with God, His nature and not His will, there are so many of these things that wouldn't even be debated today. Because we know it is not love, it is not just, it is not holy, It is not true of God. Scripture tells us that God, the Spirit, is groaning. He hates what He sees in this world. He didn't create it. He stands against it. That God gave His Son for the sin of this world. He didn't create the sin of this world. Whether it's in nature or whether it's in man, makes God groan. That groaning is the groaning of pain. It's the same pain that that creation knows. It is the same pain that we know. It is the groaning that goes to the depth of our being. A groaning that says it's wrong. It's not as it should be. And nobody groans over this. Nobody knows better than God that this world that we're living in is not as God intended That's why it will be redeemed. Verse 27, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It seems 
plain to me that Paul is saying here, not only does God empathize fully with us in the sufferings of this physical world that we are in, but that there are, there, there are different ways that God is going to address that suffering, which we don't know. And that it's not one size fits all. It is not God never heals. It is not God always heals everything. And the only one who knows whether it's this or whether it's that is the spirit who knows the mind of God and knows the mind of man. And so God, who knows and who has given us the spirit, wants to let us in on this at least on occasion. Maybe not every time but probably more time than what we recognize. That God, by His Spirit, as we pray and we seek Him for God, what would you want to do in this situation that God wants to tell us, this is how I want to handle this? Not every time, I know that. But it would seem that as He prays for us, why would He include this? Except He's trying to tell us God's will is not the same in every situation. And that the Spirit wants to know, is this a cause for healing or is this a cause for perseverance? And the Spirit is praying in line with God's specific will in specific instances of suffering. The Spirit prays rightly about my ingrown toenail or whatever else I may be suffering. The Spirit prays rightly every time, never makes a mistake. And I believe there are times, probably more than we experience, where as we pray and intercede for others, the Spirit will direct us in what He is doing and how we should be praying. Sometimes yes for healing. Other times not. Don't you wish it was one or the other? This is one of those times it would be nice to be in the ditch. God always heals, then I always know how to pray. God never heals, then I, know, then I know how to pray. But it's harder to live in that place of tension. But what does it do, that place of tension? Sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't heal. What does it do? It drives me back to him. It encourages my faith. If God always heals, that doesn't encourage my faith. If God never heals, that doesn't encourage my faith. It's that sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. That's what brings me back to him because I don't know how to pray. And I have to come back to the Spirit of God and say, how should I pray? And he directs us. The second thing he does, not only does he intercede for us with groanings, with words too deep for expression, According to the will of God. Not only does he do that, but the second thing that God's doing in this present day of suffering is he is working everything together for good. Look at verse 28. And we know. Now I like that. Remember that that same phrase back in 22. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now verse 28. And we know. See, they're both realities. It is just as much a reality that God is working all things together for good as it is that creation is suffering today. 
They are both absolute truths. Creation suffers today and we suffer in it. And God is working everything together for good. They are both absolutes. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things means all things. And it's in the present tense, meaning now. Not just one day when we die, God's going to say, now make it all right. He will. But in the present time, God is presently causing all things to work together for good. And all means all. That tells us, number one, that not everything that happens in this world is good. God makes it good. It didn't start good. And that tells us it didn't come from God. Because everything that comes from God is what? Good. So there are things in this world that are not good. They did not come from God. Because God is the author of all that is good. Every good thing comes down from above. From the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In Genesis chapter 1, everything that God made was good. And at the end of his creation, he said it is very good. That's a statement about God. God is good. And everything that God does is good. So when the bad things happen in this world, I don't have to say, well, it's really good because God made it happen. No, it's really bad. And God didn't make it happen. That's the truth of it. It is an evil. It is a consequence of sin. It should never have happened. It is not what God wants for his people. But I have a God who is working all things together for good. And as I heard Dwight Pentecost say one time in seminary, if God is working all things together for good, then that tells me God is concerned about all things. And I thank him for that. That there is nothing that happens in my life that God is not intimately acquainted with it, concerned about it, and absolutely committed to turning it for good. All things. We're reading with our students at His Hill this year, this semester, in our discipleship groups, a book called um, God Minute for Good. It's the story of Joseph. Russell Kelfer, Bible teacher from Wayside Chapel when he was still alive and he would come to His Hill, of all the different things he could teach, and there are a number of them, he always wanted to start the Bible school year with that topic. God works all things together for good. Because he thought, this is what people need the most. I mean, you can't go on in your Christian life, is basically what he's saying, as long as you're angry at God. Or if, you, or if you just think that something has happened to me that is so awful that I'm just going to have to live with the scars of this the rest of my life. You are going to live crippled until you can thank God that there is nothing that has happened in your life that God cannot redeem that and use it for good. That has to be a starting point. And again, it is so basic. It's not just theoretical. It is actual. But this is the thing, because it is an absolute of God's will, absolute of God's character, He is the Redeemer. And He is God, and He is powerful. He would have us to say, thank you, God. I know this was not your intent. You never would have wanted this to happen. It is not your design for this world, but I have suffered it at the hands of evil people. Or I have suffered it because of my own stupidity and my own sin. But God, I thank you that according to your character and according to your word that you will work it for good. Thank you. I don't know how, but I know that you will. Thank you.
Now that good is ultimately conformity to Christ. And a lot of times we have to redefine what good is. So we think good is a bigger house, good is a better income, good is more time with our kids, and all those things may be good, but they are not the ultimate good. Because the ultimate good is that we become like Christ, fully in every respect. And God will use the sufferings of this world to bring that about in our lives. We know this. It is to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Ah, man, there's another one of those conditions. And we look at it and go, well, I don't really love God. I don't love Him today anyway, or I don't love Him as much as I should, and so this is one of those things that's not going to be worked out for good. No, it is a promise. It is not a warning. This is a good thing. This not, but it but is, it is written to the Christian. This is not a promise to all humanity. It is a promise to those who are in relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And for everyone who has put their faith in Christ, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. He's just saying to the Christian, to those who belong to God. The unbeliever can't claim this verse. The believer can. God will work it for good. And then as to backing up that, in case you have any question about whether you are called according to His purpose, verse 29, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's His point. The good is to be conformed to the image of His Son. He foreknew us, and He predestined us to conformity to Christ. There is nothing in that verse about salvation. Nothing in that verse about heaven or hell. The predestining work of God is that the Christian would be brought into conformity to Christ. It will happen. I don't question whether I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Sometimes I do question whether I will ever be brought into conformity to Christ. And God says, you don't need to worry about it. It has been predestined. Those that are mine will be brought into conformity to the image of the Son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In whom he predestined, he is called. In whom he is called, he is justified. In whom he is justified, he's glorified. Folks, it's going to end in glory. We live in a time of suffering. Make no mistake about it. But it's going to end in glory. For all of us. The Spirit of God is in us. And we are not under obligation to the flesh. Amen. But. Sin is still in this world. Sin is present within you and I. And as long as we live in this world. Until that day of glorification comes. Things are not going to be as they ought. Things are not going to be as God designed. But. The ministry of the Spirit in respect to suffering. He is praying for us as He knows we need to be, what needs to be prayed. Either for healing or not for healing. But in our weakness of not knowing how to respond to suffering, He is interceding for us. And secondly, He is working everything together. Having said all that, Paul's going to move into his conclusion for this chapter. 
We'll save that for next week. That's enough to thank God for. We know this is a day of suffering. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Yes, Jesus' kingdom in a spiritual sense is here in a limited sense. But has his kingdom come? No. It has not. The word of God tells us that his kingdom will come after he has destroyed all the nations and their own kingdoms. When every kingdom has been destroyed, he will establish his own kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, after spending 40 days risen from the dead and talking with his disciples, and the one subject on Jesus' mind was the kingdom. Read chapter 1. He talked to them for 40 days about his kingdom. And finally, the disciples asked the logical conclusion. Is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know times and epochs. In other words, the kingdom has not come. Not as it will be. And we can claim Kingdom Now promises. You get on the internet and Google Kingdom Now and all kinds of stuff will come up. Where people are saying, Kingdom Now! Because Jesus is raised from the dead and he's taken his seat at the right hand of God and he rules from on high. His kingdom is to be now on earth. And you'll be in that ditch that says everything should be healed. Or you can say God heals nothing and you'll be in another ditch. And God wants us in that point of tension. He does rule. He does sit on high. But he has not yet put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy he will put under his feet is death. And as long as death is here, he has not yet crushed in actuality all his enemies. And until that time, the Spirit is praying for us. And God is working all things together for good. Father, we thank you for 